Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this episode, I chat with Hawken Fasti, a design educator and innovation consultant. We talk about his interesting career path, including his perceptual robotics work, his teaching approaches, and his mission with the Rolf A. Fasti Foundation. We also talk about navigating our way to a post-human world and the importance of designing to make the world a more human-centered place. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Radar Podcast, Hawkin. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with a bit about your background and what you're up to now. Oh, gosh, yeah. So I'll try to get through it um, pretty quickly. I've had a very uh, diverse and sort of winding career. So uh, currently, I'm an assistant professor of interaction design at the California College of the Arts. And I've been here now. This is my fourth year. And so I teach in a, in a new interaction design program. Um, and I'm a design educator. And then on the side, I also am pretty heavily involved in technology design projects for a variety of clients. And I still do some academic research as well. But really, my background, um, going all the way back, I mean, I, I'm sort of a product of an unusual generation. I, I studied studio art and physics at Oberlin College in the 90s. And this was probably the first, first generation in a long time where you could have an art degree and then very quickly end up um, working in technology. So, you know, when I graduated, I guess, as a product of sort of liberal arts thinking without necessarily any extremely practical skills, um, it was right at the beginning of the dot-com boom. And I've been fortunate enough to, um, when I was an undergraduate, to do summer internships at a local um, graphic design firm when I was back home. I'm, I'm from California originally. Um, and so things were starting to heat up. And, and I had, had some experience working there with, um, you know, I guess really the beginning of digital design uh, when I when I originally was doing my, my first internship, you know, this was mid '90s. They still had drafting tables in the office, and you know, it was a, it was a it was a graphic design shop. They they were using digital tools like Illustrator and so forth for for designing corporate identities and logos and and print collateral and prepress stuff. Um, but they had just started getting clients that were doing things with multimedia and CD-ROMs and interactivity, um, and they were like, "Hey, you're you know you're you're a young, must be technology savvy, uh, sort of of your generation. Like, dive in here." And so, so I, I got a really early start doing some multimedia stuff, and then when I graduated, um, things were just picking up. I moved to New York City and um, did broadband website development for a company there during the dot-com boom, and it was crazy. You know, like when I started working at that company. We had maybe 15 or 20 people, and over the next uh, year grew to 120, and then uh, kind of everything went up in smoke, and they were gone. <laughs> so, so that was an exciting indoctrination, I guess, into the, into the world of technology design. But what was great about, about doing that work at the time was that you know, we were doing work predominantly for um, media clients. So we, we had a relationship with Geffen Records, and they had a bunch of recording artists. And you know, so we had Sarah McLaughlin and Moby and David Bowie and Rolling Stone. Yeah, it, it was great. You know, as a I mean, living in New York, I, one of my first projects was working on David Bowie's website, which you know he was making pretty pretty interesting moves into the web space. And and the exciting part was that nobody really knew. You know, there there was no conventional understanding of what a website should be. Every Everyone knew that they needed one. And the, the prevailing technology at the time was Flash. And, you know, I wasn't a programmer, but we all kind of taught each other and I learned really quickly. And what was great about it was that you could, as a designer, design an experience with a pretty sophisticated um, control of the aesthetics and the timing and the interactivity of that experience. And that, you know, that was basically plugged into a static portal on the internet that somebody on the other side would experience exactly as you designed it. 
Um, since then, things have changed tremendously. Right now, we have responsive design and smart devices and scaling and CSS and all of these other layers on top of that that make, that make the information much more digestible across lots of channels. But it's also kind of distanced the designer, I think, from the, from the immediate experience that, the, that your user is going to have. Um, anyway, so so that was that was great experience, and I worked on some pretty pretty important stuff. I did I did a a website for the Whitney Museum of American Art. Um, they were having a big exhibition called Bitstreams that was one of the largest. I, I think to to date it was it was the largest kind of international retrospective um, kind of survey of of the digital art movement. And and I designed a website for that, which was itself a kind of interactive art experience. Yeah. So so that was my 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 work there, and then. Really, I mean, I was in New York throughout the dot-com crash and then September 11th, which really shook things up um, significantly. The, the economy had already crashed, but after September 11th, it was just like this crazy exodus. And then my, my rent went up <laughs> and I, I had met um, Ava, who's now my wife, and she's, um, she's Italian. And, and during that, that time, she was, she was sort of like, you know, things aren't going well here. I'm going back to Italy next week. And if you want, you can come with me. Otherwise, like, I'll see you. <laughs> and I was like, well, I can stay here with the, you know, terrorist threats and no economy living on unemployment, or I can go to Italy. So I went to Italy for, for a year, and she was finishing a master's degree um, and learned Italian and had some, some life experiences, which were great. We got married. Um, and then uh, basically, we realized there, there is not, there's not a great technology future, certainly, um, as an American, I think, you know, we have a sense of opportunity about the future, particularly um, the, the younger generation. And I think we're living in a very technologically progressive uh, culture. And Italy is very much the opposite. You know, it's um, it's 500 years since the Renaissance and there's not a lot of social mobility and you inherit the wealth that you have and you work within those constraints. And if you want to have a career there, you have to sort of wait in line for 40 years for something to open up. Um so in any case, we, we came back to came back to the Bay Area, and I was working in design, and uh, ended up working at IDEO, the design uh, and innovation consultancy, and working with you know tr- truly fantastic designers. I learned so much more there than you know than, than many of the other experiences I've had, just because you know you're working with really fantastic, talented people on hard problems that you know clients are seeking out the, the the best talent they can find because they don't know how to solve them themselves so you, you have sort of a direct line on solving bigger systemic challenges and you know when I when I began there I was working as an interaction designer even that term was not really broadly in use at the time maybe outside of the the technology design space it was you know these things were just emerging and so they were like you're going to be an interaction designer and I was like okay that sounds reasonable uh, and um my first project was designing a strategy for the future of a, a car. It was for Toyota. And it was very, you know, upfront user needs, field work, trying to understand the desires and passions of baby boom buying, you know, uh, car, car buyers. Um, and our client was the Toyota design team in L.A., um, and it was an interesting situation, right, where, where these guys are some of the world's best automotive designers, but they're, they're coming to an outside agency looking for strategic advice around what kind of car to build in the first place and, and kind of how, how, to, how to express that and articulate the value of it to their engineering and design teams. So I worked, you know, as an interaction designer, but on a huge variety of projects. So I did that project for Toyota and then uh, worked on packaging concepts for, for Pepsi. I worked on the design of shampoo for kids um, and uh, a lot of technology work. We did um, a lot of stuff for eBay and Yahoo and Microsoft um, and Cisco systems looking at, um, 
you know, bu- building digital experiences that would that would satisfy business business objectives, but also um, you know have a kind of draw you into a narrative experience and a, a kind of intuitive world of usable, delightful software. And then at a certain point, um, so I, I was at IDEO for. I think almost four years, I, I kind of worked my way up to, we, we started a software experience design practice, um, and we were focusing just just explicitly on designing for the screen, whether it was mobile or, or online or, or gaming. And I started feeling increasingly that a lot of the work we were doing was very responsive to the immediate commercial needs of our clients, but that we didn't have as deep a kind of technological perspective about the future and what was coming as perhaps we should have or could have had in that position of giving advice to organizations about what, what to do. So I got interested in research or, or the idea of research. I guess at that point, I, you know, I, I had never really done academic research and I, I had been working at that point professionally for 10 years and thought maybe it would be good to go back to school and started looking at master's programs and someone suggested, hey, why don't you go for a PhD? There are very few designers who have PhDs and there's some great programs and you know, my wife encouraged me to look around Italy, actually, and, and I found a, a laboratory in, in Pisa uh, that was doing, you know, some of the most advanced robotics research and kind of interactive virtual reality environments uh, in Europe. And, you know, I, I worked some connections and applied to that and, and ended up getting a scholarship to do what, what turned out to be a pretty creative sort of design and art dissertation in an environment that was incredibly technical you know, mechatronic engineering, roboticists, information technology people. So that was a, an incredible cultural learning, of both about kind of research and how that works and what, what does and doesn't work about it, frankly, from a human-centered perspective, and also just technically the world of engineering and then culturally being in, in Italy in that environment. And so I, I can tell you more about my my work with perceptual robotics, but yeah, it was pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, uh, I was actually yeah. going to ask um, what some of the projects that you worked on in that area and how you ended up pursuing the engineering side. Like, what made you, as a designer, decide to do that? Yeah, so um, you know, I guess I had always been interested as a designer in perception. And, you know, I mentioned when I was an undergrad, I was studying studio art and I got I got very interested in in visual perception and illusion and kind of embodied perception and how we how we interpret space. So a lot of my work then was kind of building these these environments that sort of make us question our senses around where we are in space and maybe kind of connect us more immediately to the present experience of being in a space and kind of interacting with the physical world. And so what really excited me about this laboratory in Italy is that, you know, on the one hand, it's a perceptual robotics laboratory. So they were using robots as a way of studying human perception and studying human perception as a way of enhancing the perception and intelligence of robotic systems, really as a kind of hand-in-hand collaboratory, like embodied experience with technology. And they had also been doing... they were basically coupling these force feedback haptic like wearable robotic systems where you can you can touch and feel objects that aren't there by simulating your sense of touch with fully immersive stereoscopic virtual reality environments. So, you know, at this point, I had been doing enough kind of programming on the interaction design side that I was comfortable working in that space. And actually, one, one thing I had failed to mention is that after the graphic design internship, there was a brief stint where I worked for an R&D company in California called Fake Space Laboratories, run by a guy named Mark Bolas, who, who later went on to, to USC and runs a, a pretty incredible virtual reality lab down there. He's, he's one of the pioneers of VR. And, you know, that job, I was just a summer intern. But but I kind of got exposed to just this world of, 
of virtual reality hardware and building immersive environments. So, so I, anyway, so this is something I'd been interested in when I saw that there was this, this perceptual ro- robotics lab. I was really excited about it. And, and particularly also because they had a, a group there that was, ex- you know, they, they had these incredible technologies for, for building demonstrations of our perceptual capabilities wearing these robots. But then they needed to apply those to research areas that would demonstrate the ability of someone using them. And one of their areas of focus was in cultural heritage, because clearly Italy has an amazing legacy of cultural heritage. Um, and so they were building a lot of demonstration units for like for museum displays where you could use these technologies to experience sculpture or to tell the story of how Michelangelo, you know, got the block of marble and carved it. And you can touch and feel these objects and and kind of recreate digital copies of virtual objects. And they had this project, the Museum of Pure Form. And it was this notion that anybody anywhere who could connect to the internet through through one of these kind of immersive virtual reality worlds would be able to touch and feel objects in that world. Uh, collectively. So that was one of the projects that really drew me to it. A lot of the the fundamental research that they were doing there, and we had a big European project around uh, skills. And here the notion was, okay, like humans have very clear symbolic languages for communicating, well, language, right? And other kinds of notation, like musical notation. But there is no clear notation for communicating how to do an embodied act. So we can record video of someone performing a dance, right? But, you know, otherwise, it's pretty much an oral tradition. If you want to learn how to be a brain surgeon, at a certain point, you know, you're going to be inside a brain <laughs> for the first time. And so, so what you do is you prototype that. And maybe, you know, in the medical space, you use cadavers, maybe. Um, but you also, you know, you practice, right? And you, you use experiences for sort of prototyping those experiences and then moving on. Or you could think about another, all, all kinds of expert skills. So in the cultural heritage space, we were looking at, you know, there, there are artisans who have skills, craftspeople, who maybe you're an expert, you can throw a pot on a wheel if you're a ceramicist. Um, and if you're a novice, your mentor might, as your hands are on the clay on the wheel, they might put their hands on your hand and kind of push and show you how you should be moving. Right. What these robotic systems allow you to do, which is really exciting, is you can take someone who's an expert at a certain skill, maybe they're an athlete, and you can put them into a robotic system and you can ask them to perform their craft, if you will. So you can imagine taking, you know, an expert, I don't know, someone like Tiger Woods, who's, who's a fantastic golfer, climb into a robot suit and show your perfect golf swing record it, and then have novices climb into the robot suit, hit play, and sort of play back the expert's body knowledge into your body. Hmm. Um, So this is the notion of a multimodal interface. You can couple all of the modalities of sensing, the visual sensation of being in a situation, the sound effects, um, you know, now, and then haptic feedback, whether that's force feedback on your kind of gross body movement, or specifically simulating what they call pseudo haptics or the sensation of touch, you can put uh, little vibrating motors all over your body and make a make a responsive suit. And so we were interested in studying, you know, what happens if, if you put someone in one of these systems, and you show them visually how it should be, and then you ask them to perform, or you play it back into their body and ask them to perform it, you can study how quickly people learn how to, 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 do those skills. And this is, this is a really powerful set of technologies for things like post-stroke rehabilitation, areas where people have maybe lost their ability to use their body, and uh, other kinds of situations. You can imagine if you're trying to teach a robot how to walk or how to perform a skill, it's very important that you be able to capture the skill in the first place so that the machine can learn from you. 
yeah. So, so anyway, it was a, a fascinating place. And, you know, the good news for me is I, yeah, I took courses on inverse kinematics and, you know, the biology of motion and all these pretty advanced scientific concepts. But my thesis was very much approaching this from a human-centered design perspective, thinking about, well, okay, so we can have these amazing experiences where if you're in a virtual reality environment, yeah, you could create all kinds of real world experiences, but it's also very much like um, a science fiction world. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know about the holodeck, right? Yeah, and right, yeah. in a holodeck, you can do anything. And so to me, the question was much more about like, well, from a human-centered perspective, what do people want to do? If you give them a holodeck, what, what's the potential of that? Uh, and let's, let's you know, it's, it's very interesting looking at cultural heritage, but let's, let's apply some of that to innovation and design and thinking about the future of our interactions with technology. So I got really interested in using those technologies to uh, really to, to create art environments that you can interact with in unexpected ways to learn and to empathize with the system uh, and kind of to teach the system about you. Right. Huh. And you, you mentioned earlier that you learned a lot through this experience about what works and what doesn't work in human-centered interaction design. What are a couple of things that don't work? <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, to a certain degree, the great thing about being a designer is that a designer is not a researcher and to a certain degree is not a content expert. They're much more of a process expert. So I guess I'll begin just by saying, you know, although I studied this stuff, I'm not a psychologist or a neuroscientist, or an engineer. And I think there's a lot of things I've intuited through my experiences about what might or might not work, but I wouldn't want to be so confident to state for sure what, what the underlying theory is, because ultimately, I think a designer's greatest secret skill is that they, um, they kind of bring an opened mindset of not knowing, a sort of intentional, intentionally naive strategy to the work. So, so, but what I can tell you is that, you know, if, if you think about human development, we spend the first, you know, six years of our life really basically just fundamentally hardwiring the neurological circuitry around how to use our body, right? And that's making sure that our senses are all working and kind of understanding our sense of balance and learning how to crawl and then learning how to walk. And there's a reason why, from a developmental perspective, that's such an important thing, is that all of our interactions and frankly, all of our thinking in the, in the adult world involves using the built environment and our ability to perceive and to, you know, to sense and then to act in response to our perceptions um, effectively as a way of thinking. And that's really what distinguishes humans from other kinds of animals is that we use the built environment, we use technology and culture and media as our way of thinking. And so I guess the point here would be that first, we spend a lot of time learning how to use our body. And then we move into kind of a visual stage. And then we learn to kind of during adolescence deal with our emotions. And, and finally, learn skills of higher order kind of reasoning and critical thinking and symbolic thinking and so forth. And so typically, what works well from a perceptual standpoint is just to recognize that a lot of the things that we consider to be expertise in, in our use of technology are thinking about it from this kind of adult symbolic perspective. Like we, we presume that if we tell someone something with words, they will do what we tell them to. Whereas in actuality, they're going to respond very automatically from an emotional and even at a lower level kind of embodied uh, experience of the world. And so from a perceptual perspective, those systems are all, you know, they're, they're deep in our, in our control system as humans. And they're very reflexive and automatic, and that's the source of our intuition. And so when we're trying to design experiences that make things, say, more intuitive for someone, it's really important that you leverage the aesthetic and kind of feeling-based 
and emotional aspects of an experience because it more immediately connects with what is intuitive to them. Of course, you never know how an experience will be used until you observe people using it. And a lot of times your hunches are quite wrong, which is why designers use you know, methodologies around rapid prototyping and iterative design to get stuff quickly into the world without, without presuming that we know what's going to work. Sure. And so kind of related to your work in robotics, you, you wrote a post recently about the importance of design in a quote unquote post-human world. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by a post-human world and what sort of future you're envisioning? Of course, yeah. So, um, so this really drew, grew directly out of my thesis work in perceptual robotics. I, um, you know, so I found myself in this laboratory as a human-centered designer, um, suddenly being expected to produce research surrounded by engineers. And I did, as you know, I had been trained to do at that point as a designer, uh, a kind of human-centered design experiment in the laboratory. I looked around and I was like, okay, well, this is really interesting. Let's try to understand what the needs of the laboratory are. And I'm really curious to understand what robots are and how engineers work. And I spent a, a significant amount of time early in my dissertation just interviewing people and watching science fiction and talking to colleagues and taking lots of notes. And I did a big synth synthesis of those findings. I was really just interested in, you know, in trends in these technology spaces. And so, so for example, you know, this is a very engineering environment. One of the things I very quickly did was, I was like, you guys are just doing amazing research work, but nobody knows about it. The only people who know about it is the academic environment. Um, so I brought in a photographer to just to document things and communicate what we were doing. Because uh, I, I was really interested in, I guess, technology trends towards the future. And so anyway, I did this big synthesis of, of my findings around the future of robotics, if you will, in my first year there. And it very quickly emerged that, that one of the, the kind of central finding was this notion of post-human artificial life is something that terrifies people and excites people and represents all the promise. You know, we have examples of this anchored in science fiction from the movies that we watch, and they have a, a dystopian element to them. And that the fact that we're exposed to those kind of techno-cultural narratives about what the future might be actually serves a very critical function for humans when they're developing their kind of moral and ethical decisions about what future to build. Um, so I identified this notion of post-human artificial life in a naive kind of emergent way, as designers do. And then, uh, you know, I went, went to Google and searched for post-human, and it turns out there's this huge field of post-humanism. Um, so clearly in the, in the 70s, there was post-modernism, and I studied art, so I, I knew about that. Post-humanism is sort of saying, okay, well... Um, it, well, it, it comes at it from a few perspectives. It's like postmodern. It's we're moving beyond modernism to some new state. Um, in this case, posthumanism from an academic perspective is really moving beyond humanism. So you could say, you know, we're now living in a world where all of our problems are because humans have become so good at focusing their technological innovation efforts on enhancing the human situation at the expense of, say, the environment or other species, right? We have a very speciesist perspective. Right. <laughs> and so posthumanism, in one sense, would be transcending that perspective to think about a bigger sense. So a lot of the, the early posthumanists were like animal rights activists, right? I think about it from a, from a design perspective, you know, I've always been interested in human-centered design. And this seemed like a really interesting opportunity to think about, well, what might it be to think about posthuman-centered design? So that could be the design of post-humans, like what kind of people will we be in the future? And also the design for post-humans, right? Post-human-centered, we're going to be designing futures for those people, whoever they are, and they're going to have different capacities than we have today. And then it's also post 
human-centered design. So designing the design methodologies that these future uh, humans might use. So, so to kind of back up and really directly answer your question, humans have evolved you know, throughout our evolutionary history uh, to have a certain set of capacities when we interact with the world. And today we live in an experience that has all of these new technologies that are really shaping the way that we think and act. So we have computers and we have the internet and mobile devices, augmented reality, and, and other things that really fundamentally alter our sense of, of what a human is. So an organ transplant, right? Or a drug that is designed, you know, to have some kind of emotional effect. So genetic engineering, right? These are capacities that are really fundamentally changing the biological nature of what humans are. Um, so the, the post-humanist theorists call this a kind of transhuman state. We're a transitional human. And what we're moving towards is this kind of hypothetical, and it's hard to pin down what, what the future will be, of course. In a, we don't want to be overly deterministic, and it's, it's hard to predict. But I think we can say pretty confidently that we're going to have capacities that radically exceed those of our present or kind of you know, biological capability. And, you know, the theory goes that then we sort of transcend the kind of unambiguous nature of what it means to be a human and we become something else. So when you mix into that uh, super intelligence or autonomous robotics or life extension, the ability to live forever, right, that you could encode your mind and upload it into the cloud or design your own children or, you know, simulate possible variants of yourself, uh, you know, try a variety of different medical treatments and then pick the one which survives. We're moving out of a state of humans as designed by nature, evolution, uh, through this kind of contemporary transhuman state of a world that's designed by humans, because we design our media and our technologies and so forth, into a state where we are no longer human because we're sort of post-evolutionary. We've, we've given our tools the capacity to shape our own future. Hmm. And so looking at this from a designer's perspective, can you talk a little bit about some of the opportunities and challenges that you foresee? And how do you think design should be approached to achieve the best possible future in this scenario? Yeah, so I think um, I think the trick is just recognizing that, you know, as humans, our basic capabilities won't change a huge amount. And so um, technology is going to increasingly have these amazing capacities, uh, but we will not. And we already know that, you know, there are a lot of behavioral principles that, that shape our, our behavior and our activities today, right? So we know that we're tremendously influenced by peer pressure or other kind of social, you know, social psychology factors. And we know that, um, you know, technology can help distract us or help us perform a task more uh, intuitively. I think the trick is that increasingly these technologies are going to be attuned to their ability to take information from us. And, and we're in this very reciprocal interactivity with them, where for the tool to be useful to us, it wants to have as much information about us as it can so that it can help us. And in doing that helping, we're actually handing a huge amount of our intentional control to those systems in a way that we want, right? Like we're developing artificial agents, right? Artificial uh, intelligence, life services. And that's a good thing. That's how technology works, right? It's very powerful if I need to, I'm a you know, busy person and I don't have a lot of time and I have limited financial resources and I might have to, you know, fly somewhere. And so I call my travel agent and they can book it. Or now I can just go online and it'll book it for me. And, you know, even recently, a great example, I booked a flight a couple of weeks ago and it populated into my calendar immediately. Google detected that I got an email from, from the airline and stuck the flight on my calendar. And I didn't ask for that. And I never opted into it. It's just giving me what it thinks I want. 
And that could be useful, but it's also quite disturbing because what it means is my schedule is not in my own control. Right. Which is great because I hate scheduling things. And one of the first things I'm going to do if ever I'm, you know, <laughs> successful would be get an administrative support person to respond to all my email because I hate responding to email because I, I value other things in my life that I care about. And so I think really to get at the, the crux of your question is that humans need to have a much better sense of, frankly, their own values. What are they hoping to accomplish in the world so that they can be very deliberate about communicating what those goals are? And, you know, a sense of integrity around protecting and preserving the things that matter. And I know as designers, we talk a lot about human-centered design. But unfortunately, the way that it tends to, to roll is that, you know, human-centered design is a resource. It's a cognitive resource, if you will. And it's only useful in the areas that you invest it in. So, yeah, I've worked as a design consultant for quite some time. If you have a client who's willing to pay a large sum of money to solve a problem, you can do human-centered design in the service of that, of that objective. But you have to recognize as a designer, you are always doing what you're doing in the service of power. And by doing that project, you're perpetuating the values of whatever it is that's driving that broader intent. Uh, and so as a designer in that system, you need to be very cognizant of your own values, what you are and are not willing to do. You need to push back when you feel like there needs to be pushback. And you need to, you know, we live in a very subjective world and it's incredibly complicated and everything is double-sided. And so you need to be comfortable for yourself about what you're doing. But I really think that it's important that you have a much bigger sense of, of what the world needs and that you are working towards those things that the world needs. Because if, um, you know, we're entering a world, hopefully, that's increasingly democratic and distributed and has values diversity and values different perspectives and creates services and all of these different little niches that benefit people in all kinds of nuanced, magical ways. Um, but it's very important that you keep those systems open and that, you know, that you have a strong point of view about the kind of future you want, because it would be so easy for, you know, for, for very powerful lobbies politically or technologically, if you will, to own all of the data or all of the thinking and have everyone else kind of follow like sheep. Right, right. You noted earlier, too, about how um, we tend to have a dystopian outlook mm -hmm. on some of these various scenarios of the future. And at the end of the blog post that, that we've been talking about, you write, it appears reasonable that human intelligence will become obsolete, economic wealth will reside primarily in the hands of superintelligent machines, and our ability to survive will lie beyond our direct control. Do you really think that humans are going to give up that much power? I actually think we already have. Really? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you think about it, right, it used to be just to take the financial or the, or the economic argument, right? It used to be that you would have well, maybe gold coins, and then at a certain point, printed paper money hidden under your mattress. Right. And that's very dangerous, and somebody might steal it, right? So, um, you know, so we've invented this idea of financial markets, which are an abstraction of money. Um, I don't know that that money really exists. I don't know, you know, I mean, it is true that banks invest in, say, real estate, they've got mortgages, and, they, you know, they've got gold vaults and stuff. But at a certain point, this is a very abstracted system. And that's really powerful to us, because I can go to a bank and make a quick transaction. And I want to give control of my money to the bank, because I don't want control of it for myself. So it seems completely reasonable that in the future, I would want to protect my bank should be protected from hackers, right? And I want to make 
make sure that that system doesn't get um, yeah, broken into or manipulated. And this is why the banking system has regulatory controls and governments are involved. But then we have systems of corruption, right? And so the NSA is focusing a lot on preventing cyber espionage or whatever, right? We need these systems to be protecting our interests. I guess that's the point. And so while it sounds very dystopian, it's actually what we want, and it is beyond our control. The, the trick is that we still do have control in the sense that, um, I mean, a good example would be to think about someone who has a significant amount of power. Um, you could think about a, well, right now we're in, a, we're in the midst of a, a presidential election, right? But you could look at the candidates, and the candidates have advisors, and the advisors have advisors, and there's a lot of very smart people and think tanks and special interests and groups that are providing as much intelligence as they are to the agent who is the candidate right? So that they can make the smart move and the right decision to stay in power. Um, as I see it in the future, we're democratizing the ability of individuals to have access to intelligent resources that act as our agents. And I think it will, will be very democratic. I think if my email and my calendar become increasingly intelligent, you know, now it's, I have the equivalent of an entire campaign staff helping me live my life, which is great. The trick is that um, I think increasingly we're going to see artificial intelligence distributed as a service on demand, right? So effectively, yeah, great, I have an intelligent inbox, and maybe it's a freemium model, right? We'll give you the intelligent inbox for free, but if you want intelligent planning around your retirement or your happiness or some other characteristics that you might want, those who can afford to pay the most will, will basically be able to buy the most intelligence. And the problem here is that those systems of power that have the ability to buy the most intelligence uh, will ultimately be the ones who are, you know, in a business to business transaction with the providers of AI. So the tech companies and the governments and the corporations, whoever it is who has, has access to that power. Um, so I think it's, it's extremely critical that we build new infrastructures and new systems that, that kind of preserve and open the democracy of systems to enable individuals to access those tools that help better their own life. Because I think, you know, on the one hand, we are living in a dystopia and a utopia. Life expectancy is up higher than it's ever been. Infant mortality rates are down more than they've ever been. And yet we have, you know, a hollowing out of the middle class. We have poverty uh, rampant, right? There's there's a kind of two-tiered system. We have refugee crises, right? Like the global warming, climate change, right? We are living in a catastrophe and we have the capabilities to do things about it. Um, the trick here is design. And if I've learned anything from doing all of this research work, it's that we don't actually need more research on how to fix global problems like global warming. Truth is we already have we already have the knowledge about how to do that. And it's very simple and we know what it is. The problem is that we need to do it, right? And right. the doing of it and, and perhaps some research around how to do it <laughs> and how to do it more effectively is really the critical piece. And so design is a hands-on, practice-based, craft-based, intuitive art. And we need a lot more designers who are following their gut and working in the interest of these global values um, because they know it's right and that's going to require integrity. And, you know, it's going to be very hard. But in my work today, I'm working very hard to make sure that we have open systems that support that kind of behavior. And so kind of using that as a little bit of a tangent to your teaching, um, you've taught, you were talking about this earlier on, but you, you taught at a couple of different schools, Carnegie Mellon and the California College of the Arts. Um, can you talk a little bit about the focus of your teaching and how your approach is at the two, the two very different schools, how you're... Yeah, this is true. I mean, it's funny. So, 
so, you know, I, I never really planned on being a researcher. In, in truth, like when I went back to, to do the PhD, I was thinking naively as a designer, you know, I might like to teach someday. It turns out both of my parents were educators. And, um, you know, so I, I grew up in an environment that really valued education. And, and I actually think that in a lot of ways, design is much more of an educational act than it is a research act, because it's about teaching people to use tools that help them make their own life better. So I, I, I guess I had a lifelong interest in education. And somehow, kind of miraculously, I found myself on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon in the Human Computer Interaction Institute. I, I hadn't been on the job market. I just finished my dissertation. And it was right during the kind of this recent economic recession. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take an academic job. That's interesting. Um, so I was there for three years and really working with incredible technologists um, in human computer interaction, which is a sort of human centered um, subdiscipline of computer science that you know involves technical research and behavioral research and quote unquote design research. And yeah, I think I think what I learned there very quickly, again, is that there's there's so many just grassroots opportunities to make um, to make life better by applying design where you are. And, you know, I was in an, you know, okay, now I'm an assistant professor, I need to be publishing academic research. I've never really done this professionally. Uh, There's lots of students here, students are enthusiastic to talk to me about problems. So I I kind of designed a laboratory there, where I just asked people to, you know, share what do you like, and what do you wish about being a student? And what do you like and wish about doing research and distilled some principles about, um, hey, like, maybe we can do a do a laboratory where instead of instead of me having to write big grants to hire PhD students, so they can sit alone in a room doing their dissertation. What if I have a laboratory that's, um, say I get 100 people to volunteer one hour a week, and we get together and work on stuff that matters for us. And so, so a lot of my work there was thinking about systems, systems for education and design, kind of the intersection of, of open education platforms and open innovation platforms. Um, also because the pressure in that, that kind of university is um, to scale, right? Um, they come from a, a legacy of sort of large format lecture-based classes. And design is a kind of small group, collaborative, participatory, hands-on right. practice discipline. Um, so there, there, my challenge was, how do I satisfy the research requirements? And how do I scale the classroom in a way um, that makes people truly happy rather than just, you know, sitting in a seat kind of getting lectured at? Um, then I came to California College of the Arts, which is totally the opposite. And it's also, you know, I'm in an undergraduate interaction design program with predominantly art students who many of them are fresh out of high school, right? They don't have design backgrounds. At CMU, I was teaching in a you know graduate program with really rigorous admission standards. Here at California College of the Arts, it's sort of the other world. It's um, you know, it, it's being much more deliberate and much more structured about introducing the theory in the classroom and um, building a hands-on hands-on way of solving problems and learning to think critically through again through these things I'm talking about, right? Really understanding what what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, and being very honest with yourself and honest with your peers about your weaknesses, so that you can you know through the process of critique and learning. Um, become become a more fluent designer with a strong point of view. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in some, I I truly enjoy teaching, and it's been yeah, it's just become a, a wonderful way, both you know, to to give back and to learn about my practice by by talking about my experiences, but also because I really think um, it's one of the. And frankly, it's probably the only way that will impact the future is by empowering people to have the, the skills and the tools that they need in the world to make their own decisions about what matters. Um, and so, yeah, so I try really hard in my teaching just to give them that perspective. Right. So switching gears um, just a little bit, you talked a touch about your parents being educators, but uh, related to that, you founded a nonprofit design organization called the Rolf A. Fasti Foundation, which is named after your father, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. And um, yeah, talk about the goal 
of that foundation? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a sort of beautiful and personal and uh, important project for me. It's something I've been working on for a long time. So, you know, my father was was a really unique and very humble um, kind of guy <laughs> and clearly a huge influence on me personally um, growing up. I think he was an educator and specifically he was a design professor. Um, and he, um, in a lot of ways, was one of, you know, I don't, yeah, at the time, you don't know these things when they happen to you. But, you know, back in the 70s, when I was a child, he had, he just got a job teaching. Um, he, he studied mechanical engineering. He was, he was an engineer. Um, but his mom had been uh, an arts educator. She taught high school for a long time. And he was always interested in, in the arts and in, in design. And he, he, got a, he got a position at Syracuse University uh, in an industrial design program as basically the engineer on an art faculty. And... During the course of his work there, he was, you know, he was a Syracuse, he rose to be a full professor, and he, he did some amazing things, really at the very origins of what we now call human-centered design. So, you know, they were doing field work, a lot of uh, public policy initiatives. He, he was one of the original co-authors of the National Standards for Accessibility to Buildings. Um, they, did, they did a lot of field work, just understanding disability, right, when the, the ADA was at, uh, enacted whenever that was back in the 70s and um, kind of understanding the principles of universal design that contractors should be using when they're, you know, when they're building ramps for wheelchair access and elevators and railings and accessible toilets and all of the rest of it. Um, so he was involved really early on doing doing this human-centered field work and kind of in the service of, of these larger initiatives. And then he did he did a bunch of stuff. He worked on UNESCO projects around development in India and solid waste disposal projects and and was very interested personally in, in creativity, the creative process and kind of the design methods movement. And then, uh, you know, when I was seven years old, um, he took a position as the director of the design program at Stanford University and and directed that program for 20 years. And that that really is, um, you know, if you look at the, the record, um, the birthplace of, of the human-centered design movement. And frankly, you know, his colleague David Kelly um, started IDEO and there's a huge amount of feedback between, between what IDEO did in the commercial world um, and really the practices and teachings that my dad was doing at Stanford during those years. Um, and now, of course, we have the D-School. Um, the D-School was founded in 2003. My father passed away in 2003 very suddenly. Uh, he had esophageal cancer and basically had two weeks to live just before he was, he was up for retirement. And, you know, I was... In my 20s at the time, um, this was when I was in New York. I, I never really, frankly, had a, had a deep understanding of what he had done um, or what his work was because his way of operating was very, you know, he was a tenured professor at Stanford, but he was deeply committed to education and creativity and this kind of philosophy I've been talking about, about just the one-to-one -one personal impact in the classroom on getting people the skills and and the integrity and the viewpoint to make the world better. He was not at all interested in celebrating himself or celebrating design thinking as a methodology um, because I think he was interested in getting to the roots of human creativity and the origins of it as this kind of innocent, um, you know, is this place where you gleefully suspend judgment and um, just act, act responsibly to your world. And that's, that's the kind of subconscious space where he knew um, creative activity comes from. Um, and there's plenty of literature psychologically about, you know, kind of intuition and all of these things, which he had been deeply involved in studying. Um, anyway, so he passed away and I um, and, and my brother sort of inherited this legacy of stuff. And, um, you know, it's 40 years of design scholarship um, in papers he had written and boxes and books and just design teaching tools. We were both very young. It was kind of a shock for my family. My mom had to move. You know, there, there's a lot of life stuff. And so... His, his work has, you know, been in boxes for the last 15 years at this point. And we knew, you know, I, I guess I knew when I went off to do my PhD that um, I kind of needed to reconcile just for myself 
my point of view on design through his lens because I feel like I learned so much of it personally by osmosis, I guess, through my life, but I'd never really studied it or frankly understood what he did. And he'd been working on editing a book and I was like kind of naively, oh yeah, well maybe I can just sort of edit the book and maybe we can get that out. And as I looked into it, it was just like, wow, there's just like all these references to all this other material I don't understand. And so the foundation, you know, we're a nonprofit and on the one hand, we're really interested in in preserving and, and again, kind of getting, getting the story out about all of these t- teaching tools and resources and methodologies that he had developed that, you know, kind of, they could be documented and they can be dispersed into the world. But he didn't, he didn't publish academically. He, he did it through hands-on teaching exercises in the classroom in a very embodied uh, kind of social way. Um, and so I think where we're at now with the foundation is the idea that, um, you know, we want to treat all those materials respectfully and we want to get them out into the world. And the best way to get them into the world is not to, to talk about how great he was or how great they were, but really to enact that way of being in the world on future-oriented projects and get people using these methodologies and this way of thinking uh, to make the world a more human-centered place. Because, frankly, that, you know, that's, that's the, the genesis story of human-centered design. It's not, it's not just about the humans you're designing for. It's about yourself as a human and understanding your own needs and desires and motivations in the world and aligning those with the needs of the people that you serve. So that's, that's the mission of the foundation. Um, you know, we're at this point still very small volunteer based organization, but we do have now his archive into a physical space that can be visited and explored. And we've done a huge amount of work, um, scanning and uploading a lot of handouts and methodologies and worksheets and stuff to our website at fastyfoundation.org. Um, and one of the things we're thinking now very heavily about is, um, really the future of open yeah, of, of open innovation technologies in this space. So, so really, can we, can we empower people in a democratic way to participate, to participate in, in a design thinking ecosystem? Um, it's a lot like a creative commons that empowers and tailors design tools for whatever, um, you know, whatever personal projects people might be pursuing in their life. And in this regard, the foundation's mission, I guess, is really about democratizing access to design tools um, in the same way that Wikipedia offers access to the world's information. Uh, we want to offer access in a similarly open, open source kind of kernel. Uh, so we're calling this project the creativity kernel uh, to really kind of give away design methods and develop an ecosystem that allows designers to change and modify and use those methods in their practice such that other people can share and use those methods in theirs. Right. Well, that's fantastic. That's really interesting. Um, so to bring our conversation to a close, I want to ask um, just something very broad. Who and what are you finding inspiring right now? Oh, um, <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I don't know. I, I wish I had more time, to be honest, to be, to be reading and researching and pursuing scholarly lifestyle. Uh, I've had a flavor of that with the PhD in my work at CMU. Now I'm in a, in a situation where I'm teaching and I'm inspired by my students. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been talking a lot about the, this, this big, scary technology future that we face. And I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of, oh, it's inevitable. And humans are just, you know, very feeble cognitive <laughs> instruments that can be manipulated by marketing and you know, that, that our, our Facebook is going to addict us and everything is going to be, um, you know, we're just going to get sucked along by the machine. Um, and what I've seen happening in my classroom, which is just so inspiring, is that, that these students have grown up in a world where information access is, is a given and where the internet is open. 
and where there are APIs and capabilities and, you know, tutorials and, uh, you know, there's lynda.com, you can make instructables, right? They, they live in a world where you can learn anything you want and you have the power to shape the future through that. And that's the expectation that they have. And so when they think about these big, scary problems that we face, um, what I see is that they're like, okay, well, that's great. Those big organizations that are, you know, running and owning the banks and the internet and the technology and the AI, that's all just the infrastructure. And what's really going to happen here is there's going to be ecosystems upon ecosystems of little startups and little hackers and individuals creating and modifying and developing services that live between me as a designer and the people I serve as, as users of these systems and that intelligence or those powers. And so, you know, it starts small and, you know, think global, act local is, <laughs> is a kind of ecological message. But I really feel like they, they get that in a very inspiring way in the work that they do, because, you know, they might come up with a very simple concept um, that satisfies their needs and the needs of some of their friends. And it's just amazing because, because they're not burdened by all of the preconceptions or, you know, existing conventions about how the world should be. And because they're coming, frankly, from their own very naive state as young designers, um, none, of those, none of those constraints or rules apply to them. And there's a niche in the world for what they imagine to come true. And, you know, I look at these projects and I'm like, easily every, every year, you know, I, I teach, teach projects on, on controls and on storytelling and on behavior design. And I'm amazed, right? We'll have a small class of, you know, 12 or 14 students and say a third of them come up with in just a one week assignment, they come up with something that, that I'm like, you could patent that and it's probably a billion dollar industry. You would need to connect to the enablers of those ideas. But, you know, the insights are there and the potential is there. and um, yeah, they, there's, I, I, have, I have great optimism for the future because I'm inspired by the work that they're doing. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Hawken. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. You can find Hawken online at hawkenfasti.com. That's H-A-A-K-O-N-F-A-S-T-E.com. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.